Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Reske. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Let's, uh, let's pray first. Okay, Lord, um, Lord, we want to thank you so much that we can gather together in your name. And we do gather together in your name to look into your word, to understand it, to apply it to our lives. Uh, give us great insight this morning, Lord God, into your word. Um, thank you so much for inspiring the Apostle Paul to write the book of Romans. Thank you for Romans 6 through 8. Uh, thanks that we have a chance to dig into it. Please to open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Good morning, everyone. We're, today we're going to talk about Romans uh, 6 through 8. Romans 6 through 8. And I have to tell you, um, I am uh, giddy to talk to you about Romans 6 through 8. I'm beside myself with joy actually talking about Romans 6 through 8. I love Romans 6 through 8. And in fact, uh, I think... I think in my mind, Romans 6 through 8 is the best three-chapter sequence in the Bible. I'm really hard-pressed to think of any better three-chapter sequence. You might say, oh, I've got a favorite book of the Bible. I've got the favorite character. I've got a favorite verse. But for a three-chapter sequence, it's hard to beat Romans 6 through 8 because it's all about our sanctification, our Christian life, our Christian living, how we grow in Christ. So I'm, I'm just super excited to talk to you about this. And you, and you will know how much I love Romans 6 through 8 because the last time I was here talking to you, I was talking about 2 Corinthians. And at the end, I worked in Romans 6 through 8. So at the end of that talk, I said there's a great sermon series from Tim Keller, Dr. Tim Keller, on Romans 6 through 8. And I gave you the web address, and I commended you to go get those sermons and download it. And if you remember, it was when we talked about A Tale of Two Cities, and we talked about getting the gospel into your heart, and that's from that. So today, uh, I'm actually going to use some of that material what I'm going to do is, because these three sermons were so life-changing for me, I want to basically follow the basic outline of these sermons. So if you haven't done it, I still encourage you to do it. Uh, you have to go to this website, gospelinlife.com. You have to set up an account. You have to pay some money. You have to download it. I imagine a few of you did that. I still encourage you to do that. Uh, it's way better than anything I'm going to say today. But what I'm going to do, even if you did have done that, you'll recognize it because I'm going to use his basic structure of going through Romans 6, 7, and 8 to inform the talk today. Now, I've backfilled it with a lot of other material, other things I want to talk about, but the basic structure comes from this sermon series. And this is what we're going to talk about in Romans 6 through 8. How does change in our life really happen? You become a Christian, but then how do you change? What's the process of sanctification look like? How does it work? The basic plan here is we'll talk about Romans 6 and the principles to apply to our heart. In Romans 7, we're going to talk about the heart to which our principles need to be applied. And then in Romans 8, we're going to talk about how to apply those principles to our heart. All right, here we go. Now, yes, before I get to Tim Keller, I'm going to quote somebody else that you may know, Alistair Begg. Uh, Alistair Begg gave a sermon called Good News for Lawbreakers. And the sermon text for the sermon was Romans 3. And it's a great summary of kind of the first part of Romans and a good segue into Romans 6 through 8. So I'm going to read this to you. And I, I, I promise I, I'm not, I won't drift into a Scottish accent. And if it sounds like it, I'm not trying to, okay? Uh, I don't mean to do that. But here it is. The Ten Commandments are a message that says, we need someone else to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Irrespective of our background, whether we're a clueless pagan or religious, we all fall short of the glory of God. We all flunked. The test papers have come back and nobody got anything other than an F. It's all Fs. No one ever got anything other than an F. And there's a little dot, dot, dot there because he, I, I took it out because he goes on a riff and he starts getting laughs from the audience because he's saying, look, I got an F. What'd you get? Oh, I got a high F. Oh, good for you. I think I got a medium F. He said, but they're all Fs. They're all Fs. The only one who ever got an A was Jesus. He got an A and he got an A so that our Fs may go down the tubes and he may put his A in our place and God may accept us because of his A irrespective of our F. Now, this is the part I really want you to hear. But do you know how many people in this church, Sunday by Sunday, go out of this church assuming that the message is, I've got to bring my grade up. 
I'm sure I'm getting an F and I need to get it to at least a D or a C or a good B. I've got to get my grade up. Hear me this morning if you've never heard me before. If you work from this morning to the day you die, you cannot do one thing to get anything other than an F. There's not one religious thing I can do, not one philanthropic thing I can do. There's not a thing I can do to alter my grade. Now, what he's doing is summarizing the first part of Romans, because Romans 1, and we talked about this the last couple of weeks, Romans 1 comes by and says, there's a lot of irreligious people in this world, and they're sinners, and they're lost. And then Romans 2 comes by and says, there's a lot of religious people in this world, and they're sinners, and they're lost. And then Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen. Everybody is sin. Right. There's not one who does righteous, does good and sinneth not. No, not one. We all get F's. But, but the frustration he's talking about, I think, goes right into this gospel illustration. Now, I am clearly, and I told you before, a one-trick pony. Because I'm going to show you the gospel. Yes, amen. I'm going to show you the gospel illustration again. And I realize uh, Gino's never seen this before. But all the rest of you, may, most of you have seen this, I think I've used it about five times uh, in, in this study in the past. But I have to use it today because this study, the illustration essentially illustrates sanctification. It's, this illustration essentially illustrates Romans 6 through 8. So if I didn't show you, I'd be referring to it all the time anyway. So I want to go through this again, but I'm going to go through it pretty quickly because I'm cognizant of the fact that most of you have seen this five times already. Okay, but what Al Bag was trying to talk about when he says people come in this church Sunday after Sunday thinking I've got to get my grade up, what he's describing is people who are living their Christian life on the single line. And what they're saying is it's a simple draft, simple chart where uh, time is on the horizontal axis and goodness or righteousness is on the vertical axis. And there's a little cross in the bottom left corner. And a diagonal line that starts there and goes up and to the right. People say the gospel, yes, good for the start of my salvation, for my justification. I'm saved by faith. That part is clear. I get that. Now, the rest of it's up to me. The rest, the, the way I grow in Christ, my sanctification, my Christian growth is through the application of hard work and effort to become a better person. And that's exactly what Alistair Begg is saying people are getting wrong. They're coming to the church Sunday after Sunday thinking, I hear what you're saying about the gospel, but I've got to go back and get my grade up. And he's, without knowing it, he's describing this whole single-line approach to Christianity. The gospel-driven approach is different. The gospel-driven approach, as we've talked about before, does have an upward-sloping line, but it's not a representation of your increasing performance over time. It's a representation of your growing awareness over time of God's holiness, which comes to you largely through the act of worship. And there's a downward-sloping line, which is your growing awareness of your own sinfulness, your own lostness, which usually comes to you through the acts of confession and repentance, that's their function, to drive you down the lower line. At the start of your Christian life, you knew there was a gap between you and, and, and God, and you needed Jesus to fill that gap. That's why the cross is little. But as you grow in Christ, you realize how lost you are. You realize even more and more how great he is, how high his righteous standards are, how, how far from them you've, you've fallen. And what he did for you looms even larger in your life, so you're more grateful over time. And that, in turn, indirectly, changes your life. Now, keep in mind, we've talked about this before, God's actual holiness is a parallel line a billion miles up. You're just not aware of it. That's why you're growing in your awareness of it. Your actual sinfulness is almost a, almost a parallel line a billion miles down. You're just not aware of it. But over time, your life does change, and that lower line does come up. It's a dotted, but it's dotted, and it's dotted for a reason, because you're not primarily aware of it. You're really aware of Jesus. In the single-line approach, the see the little arrows? Those are significant. They'll come up again in this talk. All your efforts, all your works, coming to Bible study, going to church, are all directed to climb up and to the right to improve your spiritual performance. And in the gospel-driven transformation, all the arrows are all pointing at Jesus. Everything you're doing is all about Jesus all the time, and that, that changes your heart. So that's essentially an illustration of Romans 6 through 8. But with that in mind, let's go. Romans 6 is really designed to, to tackle a problem that comes up immediately if you explain the gospel to somebody. So if you say, in Christianity, salvation is received and not earned. Justification is by faith. There's nothing you can do to get that. Uh, a, Jesus has done it all for you. But if that's the case, why would you change it all? Why bother? Why not live any way you want? In other words, if a single line isn't how it works, 
then what's my motivation ever be good? Why would I even try? Look, if this was a college class, all of you were college students, and I said, uh, guys, there's going to be a test at the end of the semester. Uh, it's going to be a very challenging test. So you ought to study hard, but I'm going to tell you right now, you're all getting A's. And you'd say, wait, what? Hey, yeah, you're all getting A's. But you're telling me now I'm getting an A. Yep, you're all getting A's. Wait, let me get this straight. If I hand in a perfect test, I study super hard, my test is perfect, I get an A. Yeah, that's right. If I don't study at all and I hand in a blank paper, I get an A. You got it. What happens in a typical college classroom? People say, you don't have to tell me twice. Got you, got to teach. No one shows up. So if it's all by if it's all by grace, the immediate problem is license. Louis, Louis, yes, go ahead. Wouldn't it depend on the relationship with the teacher? It has a lot to do with the relationship. The question was, does that depend on the relationship with the teacher? It does, yes. And there'll be some students who'd be self-motivated and do it anyway, but yes. We'll get to that. But then generally, this is, the, this is the problem. The problem theologically is the problem of license. If salvation is free, it's all by grace. You're going to get an A no matter what. The natural problem is license, and Paul has to address that. That's why Romans 6 is written this way. It starts off this way right away. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. So how does he tackle it? Two themes. First is... Spiritual slavery, the second is cosmic unity. And what, I'll give you the punchline right now so you can just organize the thought in your mind. What Paul is saying is, if you say, I'm saved by grace, therefore I can live any way I want, you do not understand your spiritual slavery, you do not understand your cosmic unity. Now, what do those two things mean? First of all, spiritual slavery. It comes from verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. What Paul is saying here is sin is slavery. You offer yourself to it. You think you're free, but you're not. Now, you do have to take a moment here because when you talk about slavery, our experience, especially in our country, is that it's race-based and it's for life. That's not the kind of slavery Paul's talking about. What he's talking about in the New Testament is more like indentured servitude, where you'd say, I've got this debt, and I will offer myself to you for seven years to work off that debt. That's why he's, he's describing it as a choice, that you're offering yourself here, or you're offering yourself there. You're making a choice to put yourself into slavery. But notice he uses the word either. It's very binary. He said, either you're going to offer yourself as a slave to the Lord, or you're going to be a slave to something else. And that's consistent with the first commandment. The first commandment says... I'm the Lord your God, I'm, I alone shall you serve, you shall have no other gods before me. First commandment is binary. Either you're going to serve God or you're going to serve something else. Now you say that to the average non-Christian, they don't believe you. I mean, I had friends in New York, they'd say, it's so sad that you're a Christian. Because, you see, because I'm, so, I'm so free to do whatever I want. I can use whatever kind of language I want. I can sleep with whoever I want. You're so sad that you're, you're, you're a Christian. You don't have freedom like I do. And I thought, oh, no, it's the exact opposite. Sin is slavery. Sin is slavery. Now, how do we know that? Because Paul talks about this word, in this verse, a certain word that should be very familiar to all of you who have been going to CCC for some time. Verse 12, he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its lusts. Some translations will say evil desires. You obey its evil desires. But the real word there, the Greek word is epithumia. Epithumia, well, it's actually a neutral word. It doesn't say evil desires, it's often translated lust, but epithumia is over desires, epi-desires. And the idea here is that you are taking good things in your life and turning them into ultimate things. You can take your job, your kids, your family, anything that's good and turn it into an ultimate thing. Now, I say this should be very familiar to you because in our church, I know Joe Coffey has preached on this many times. And he's talked about epithumia, that Greek word, in his sermons a number of times over the last 15 years or so. In fact, this is the whole point behind the whole bicycle wheel illustration. So if you don't, for those of you who may not go to our church, Joe Coffey will have a bicycle wheel. He'll say there's lots of spokes, and there's lots of elements of your life, things that you do, but everyone's got a hub. Everyone's got a hub of their life. And if that hub isn't Jesus, then you are, your life is revolving on something else. And that's the point Paul's making. 
right? It's, 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 you have, we have, everyone has something they live for, something that is their main way of driving significance and security. That's their real hub. You may say you follow Jesus, but that's your real hub. We've all heard that message again and again and again. And, I'll, and so I don't want to belabor it because we've all heard it. But what I want to do is say, I think we miss it. I mean, I miss it. It's tricky because you just don't see it. You don't see it. So for example, if I went up to one of you and I said, do you think you've turned your job or your career into an epithumia and you've taken a good thing and made it an ultimate thing, that it's too important to you? You might say, oh, yeah, that's my sin. I, I got to confess it. But you might say, no, no, not really. I mean, I think I've got it in perspective. I know, I know other people, Lord knows, other people, I know some people that it's far too important to them, but I think I've got it, I think I'm okay. And then if you said that to me, I would look at you and say, oh yeah, me too. I think I'm okay. I think I've got it in proper perspective. What about your family? What about your health? Yeah. Lord knows I know other people. That's too, far too important to them. But for me, I think, I'm, I think I've got it. I'm, I'm okay. I think I've got it in perspective. In other words, it's really, we've all heard this teaching with the wheel again and again. It's just really hard to see it in your own life. And so I want to give you a couple tests, things to think about that might be things that show you what your epithemia is. The biggest test is your emotions. What do you get really emotional about? Because when a good thing in your life is threatened or taken away, you feel sad, you can get angry. But when an ultimate thing is threatened or taken away, you get epi-angry, you get enraged, you get despondent. So emotions are a really good clue. I met a guy once in a parking lot in Massachusetts. My wife and I were there to watch the sunset. He was there with his girlfriend. Hey, where are you from? Struck up a conversation, talked to him for 10 minutes, 10 minutes. In those 10 minutes, I learned that he had been drafted by the NFL, played briefly for the NFL, and then was cut by the NFL. And he never got over it. And, he, and, he was, and, there, and as he kept on talking, he kind of trailed off and was saying, yeah, the NFL, it's just, a, it's just so hard. It's just a harsh, harsh world. It's a harsh taskmaster. And, 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 his, and his girlfriend kind of changes subject. She put her, her arm around him. And, you know, there's plenty of other things to live for. It's okay. Hey, we got we to gotta go. We got to go. Years ago, cut by the end, never got over it. I mean, that is, look, it's an easy, again, easy to see in someone else. I can see the speck in all of your eyes. I can see the speck in his eye. Can't see the log in my own eye. But that's why the emotions are a great test of this. Hey, let's reflect. What am I really emotional about? There's another test, but quick, really quickly, two other tests. Embarrassment. What are you really embarrassed by? If you, you say, are you really, really, really embarrassed by something? That's usually a test that it's, you've taken a good thing, made an ultimate thing. I mean, if you ever walk in someone's house and they, they walk in and say, oh yeah, they don't look at this over here. We're, we're, we're working on that. We're gonna tell, don't go in the kitchen. We're going we're gonna to rip all that out. It's all going to change. Really, really, don't look at it. And you just walk in and you say, it's fine. It's fine. Why are you embarrassed by this? It's really, it's no, it's no, it's no trouble. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Don't look at the floor. We're, it's all, we're ripping it out this weekend. It's all, why are you embarrassed? Why are you backpedaling? Or do you see that in yourself? What are you really embarrassed by? You say, I can't, I can't do it. I can't show up looking like this. What, what embarrasses you? That's a really good clue to your epithemia. And one more, what do you spend money on? What do you spend money on freely? Where money flows out of your hands like water. You buy things you can't afford. What is it? Like, in, 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 like the kind of the place where I grew up, okay, having a cool motorcycle is really a big, big thing, right? So you can say, well, I can't, I can't really afford this motorcycle, but I got to buy it. I can't show up with the guys with a cheap motorcycle. This is what you mean. I'd be embarrassed. Got to do it. I've got to, can't afford it. I got to do it anyway. Got to do it. What is What do you spend money on like water? And what are you embarrassed by? This is really good clues. And I just wanted to spend a minute because we've all heard this teaching, but we lose it somehow. I don't really see it in ourselves. I don't in myself. So that's one thing. If you, the point is, if you say, I've been saved by grace, I can live any way I want, you are out of touch with the idea that your sin is actually slavery. You think you're free, but it's got, it's got mastery over you and you're serving it. The other thing in Romans 6 is your cosmic unity, your cosmic unity. And it comes from verses 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And I underline two words there because I want to talk about them. Certainly, it's just an odd word in this sentence because the verse five, look, it's an if-then sentence, right? Usually you would think it would say, for if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, then if you play your cards right, if you climb up a single line, if you're filled with obedience, then you have a good shot of being united in his, the likeness of his resurrection. And it doesn't say that. It's certain. It's insoluble. You're, you're getting the A, right? Dead certainty. Even though it's, it starts with an if, if we be united with him, certainly we should be also in the likeness of his resurrection. But the united word is interesting. The united word is actually a horticultural word. It's the word for grafting. And this is, a, this is a, a teaching Paul gives us about Christianity that's almost freaky. Because what he says is, when you become a Christian, you are completely united with Jesus. His, you are united. His past becomes your past. His future is your future in a deep spiritual way. So you have been united with his death. You've been united with his resurrection. His, his life is your life. And if you don't quite get that, there's a parallel passage in Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 1 through 3. Therefore, if we have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. You have died. You've been raised. The point is this. If you say, oh, I become a Christian, I'm getting the A. Why not just live any way I want? You don't understand the complete cosmic unity, the complete transformation that's come over you when you become a Christian. Everything's changed. Everything's different. Joe Campanella. Thank you. Uh, Jim, if you uh, I, can you be a Christian and have epimethomia in your life? Yes. And if you can, what impact does that have on your Christian walk and your sanctification? You absolutely can be a Christian of epithumia. I, I, can actually, I agree with that. I guarantee you, you're a Christian and you have epithumia because you're a Christian. We're still all sinners. So we're still all actual sinners to the extent you say, and this is a good, good point, Joe, because as to the extent you say, well, I'm going to live any way you want. You're going to be a Christian that's lost salt, your, your saltiness. You're not going to have any effectiveness for the Lord, right? And you're, and, and you're going to miss out on walking with the Savior. Yeah. Tom Buzzy, wouldn't you say that's where the Holy Spirit comes in? Because I've, through my walk, I notice when I think I've overcome a sin, a sin in my life, all of a sudden something else pops up in yes. my mind. And I'm just convinced that's the Holy Spirit working on us to, to follow Christ. Amen. That's the Holy Spirit, conviction of sin. And we're, we'll actually get to that as well. Go ahead. Another one back here. What I was going to say, name. Oh, my name is Leon Feldman. Thanks, Leon. Um, what I was going to say about the kind of um, way in which we discern these things in our lives and other lives is there's there's a measure in which confession to other people and as a result uh, or admonition ahead of that confession is an important way for us to recognize things and probably. There's no other way in many instances other than that. So I just want to emphasize the importance of uh, being in front of other people um, because it's not just a matter of, of can you see it or not. It's like you won't see it in many instances without other people. And so to be open to that and um, as a result have uh, others that can um, – keep you accountable. And on the other end of the coin, if you do run into people who say they're Christians and openly reject that admonition whole hog, you know, say, um, I understand the gospel, you know, maybe intellectually and, and maybe they even, even profess that, but they actually whole hog reject uh, any admonition about doing or being obedient in some of those areas. Uh, it's actually a good indication that you should start your, your engagement with them as a non-Christian because effectively they are. If they're rejecting the admonition entirely versus maybe just one area or they have some conviction and they're struggling with it, I think it's a, it's a good way to, to um, get a starting point with anybody you're talking to as well. Great. Thanks, Leon. Over here, coming. Um, Dave, you know, when you speak about specific words, you got united and certainly, well, a big one in a Christian one is in. Yes. When you're in Christ, he's in you. And that's the game changer. Like you mentioned, the Holy Spirit, you know, that all of a sudden now you, you know, you have a conscience, you might say, because he's in you. And when you say like changing the heart, 
Well, and the heart in the Bible really means your, your core, your bowels. Uh-huh. And so now you're able to actually, at least for me, I started feeling guilty. I had a conscience for the first time in yeah. my life. It's because he really was. It went from just being legalistic, following the Bible, the rules, to a real relationship where he's in you. Like I says, that's when everything changes. Yeah. I was just going to mention, I think the real danger is Jesus is altogether lovely. And when we start to have these epithumias, it's a distraction. And the real risk or the disadvantage is it takes away from our ability or our opportunity to have fellowship and intrinsically to be deeply in Christ. Yes, yes. You're going to cheat yourself out of communion with Christ. Listen, to the young, to the young Christians, I got a good message for you. I've been saved by Jesus Christ in 1977. You can't do it yourself. Jesus Christ does it all for you. And uh, I'm 84 years old. And uh, just don't give up. Remember, you can't do it yourself. The sanctification takes time. Uh, when, when Christ came to my life, he changed me instantly. I started reading the word, God's word, which is true. So I urge all the young Christians, don't give up. That's great, Nick. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So since we're talking, we'll continue to talk about not giving up. And we're going to move on to Romans 7. Because Romans 6 then says, if you, if everything's by grace, why bother to live a Christian life? Romans 7, and those are great principles for Romans 6. Now, Romans 7 is all about the nature of the heart to which the principles need to be applied. And we're going to learn what our biggest problem is what won't work against it, and then what will. What our biggest problem is, Romans 7, verses 18 through 21. For I know that nothing good, nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin, which dwells in me. I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Now, first of all, the last few words there, Paul's really drawing a strong contrast between Romans 7 and Romans 6. He says, I'm not like the casual Christians in Romans 6 who are saying, you know, I can just go keep on sinning. He says, no, I am the one who wants to do good. I just find that I can't do it. Because they have evil living inside me. And what he's doing here is taking us on a tour of his lower line. Paul's saying, look, I don't know if Paul's directly saying this, but Paul is far more mature in Christ than any of us will ever be. None of us spiritually will accomplish anything like writing the book of Romans. Right? Paul is way ahead of all of us, and he describes his own sinfulness this way. He is taking us on a little tour of his lower line because he is so deep in his awareness of his lostness and his deep sinfulness, right? And it reminded me when I read it of uh, A.W. Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God, chapter three. And I know a number of you have read Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God, because it's part of the CLC curriculum. So I know a number of you have done that. But Chapter three of Tozer's book, even if you don't read the whole book, borrow from somebody, read chapter three, because in chapter three, Tozer says, sin is not just discrete rules that you're breaking. Sin is all the, all the self-hyphenated words, self-centeredness, self-absorption, self-pity. Everything that revolves around himself. And he's very consistent with St. Augustine, because Augustine said the heart is always ever turned inward on itself. That's the nature of our human heart. Our our core sin problem is self-centeredness and self-absorption. And Tozer's contribution, I think, is that in that that chapter three, he says, your sin is like a living tissue. It's organic. It's growing in you. It's like a cancerous mass growing inside you. It's not just, I've got to stop swearing. I've got to stop breaking that rule. No, sin is way worse than you think it is. And that is really consistent with the way Paul is describing sin. I'm sorry, I don't want to keep interrupting you, but I, I, I love this scripture, but I want you to know that I was with a Christian when I lived in Cincinnati, and he ended up having an affair. Uh, left his wife, left his kids, lived with this woman, he worked for GE, 
he finally comes back to her. He used this very scripture. He says, you know, Joe, it wasn't me. It's no longer me that was doing the sin. It was the sin within me. Yes. I said, Are you trying to divorce yourself from what you did by saying it's the sin in me? It's not me. Right. You got to be careful. I mean, and Paul isn't saying that. Paul's, Paul's definitely not using this as an excuse to sin. That's we'll right. We'll actually get to a second. He'll say, before we go on sinning, the grace may abound, may it never be. Right. So he's not, he's not saying, therefore, just get in. Right. And or he uses as an excuse. Yeah, that's a real perversion of the scripture. That's really wrong. Okay. But what he is saying is here, what won't work. What, he says what won't work is the direct application of the moral law to our heart. The direct application of the moral law to our heart. And that may come as a little bit of a surprise because every world religion says this is how it works. You form a moral community. You get together. You read the rules to each other. You form groups where you encourage each other to take the moral law and apply it directly to your heart. And, and through the sheer force of your will and your effort, you are going to climb that single line and you are going to overcome the immoral impulses of your heart. The, and that, that is what every world religion teaches. And that's what Alistair Begg was saying. Still, a lot of people in my own congregation think that's the way it works. That's, and Paul is saying that's not how it works. Why not? Paul says there's a greenhouse effect to the law. There's a greenhouse effect. It's in verse 5. For, uh, uh, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law are, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. The sinful passions are aroused by the law. When you know that something is off limits, it only makes you want to do it more. It's the, it's the forbidden fruit effect. Look, I'll give you a super silly example of this. If I went in the parking lot and I set off a parking space with cones, and I said, guys, you can't park there anymore. You just can't park there. That spot is off limits. You can't do it. It wouldn't be long before guy, you, you start saying things like, well, why is it off limits? Why that spot? Does it, do other people get to park there? Who's Jim to tell me I can't park in that spot? What happens if I do park in that spot? I'm going to park in that spot. Right. And, and, and just a silly example, but what it shows you is that until you, as someone says, you can't park in that spot, you didn't care about that spot. You weren't even aware of that spot. But now that it's off limits, you start saying, hey, well, what about that? The law has that kind of greenhouse effect. But the, that's just a, that's kind of a minor example, a silly example. The more serious one is this. It's Paul's micro testimony right in the middle of Romans 7. This little mini testimony. And, and when I, Tim Keller expounded on this in the sermon, and I heard it, I said, wow, that's a, that's... It's a reading of this passage I would not have get from just reading it. And so I went back and walked through a bunch of extra commentaries. And yes, a lot of other commentators for years have seen this in this passage. And the idea is this. Here, let me read it to you. Romans 7, Romans 7, 7b through 9. I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And what Paul is saying is that for commandments 1 through 9, I was alive. I was alive for commandments 1 through 9. Alive in the sense that a team is alive. If you're still in the playoffs, you're not eliminated yet, you're still alive, you're still in the running to get the prize. Paul says, I was alive, I was doing fine, because every one of the commandments, 1 through 9, can be read as external behavior only. I don't make an idol in my house. I've never committed adultery. Now, we all know, especially from the Sermon on the Mount, that that's not the way to read the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments involve your heart as well. They involve the intent. If a man looks at a woman to lust after her, he has committed adultery with her already in his heart. That's the way we're supposed to read the Ten Commandments. And Paul was saying, I can read, and when I was a Pharisee, I could read all the commandments as external behavior only, and I was doing just fine. I was alive. I was spiritually healthy until I got to the Tenth Commandment which cannot be read any other way than a commandment of the heart. You shall not covet. You shouldn't want what you don't have. And then he says the greenhouse effect kicked in, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. And what Paul is saying is, I was keeping all the other nine. I was doing just fine, but I found that I could not control my heart. And that's, that's the real sin. I can't control my heart. And that's where he comes to the realization that I've got sin living inside me. It reminds us of Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So what we need is not just an application of the rules to our heart. We need a complete transformation of our heart. This is one of the important messages of today. Dealing directly with your sin problem 
only makes it worse. Only makes it worse. If you say, no, 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 I don't, I'm not buying this. I think I should climb the single line. I want to work hard to apply the moral law to my heart, clamp down on that through my will and effort, change my heart, climb up the single line and be a better Christian. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's what I'm going to do. I want to tell you, you, you probably can stamp out some sin in your life, but it's going to be counterproductive. Because what happens is it turns you into a really nice little Pharisee. It makes you very self-righteous. If, that, if, you, if that's your way of doing it, if that's what you think, you say, see, see you're successful. And through the application of your effort, you do become more moral. You'll say, look at me. And look at all those other Christians. Look at their casual neglect of all the rules. They're not putting forth nearly the effort I am. It will, and then you'll develop sinful pride in your heart, which is worse. It makes the whole problem worse. And so, if that's the case, should you just abandon willpower at all? Should you just relax and turn off your mind and float downstream? Right? Is that, is that what he's saying? He's saying, well, if, if the direct application of the moral law to your heart is not what works, if that's not the way it's supposed to work, then maybe I shouldn't try it all. And he says, absolutely not. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Do you chuck the law? Do you get rid of it? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin if not for the law. And those are the key words. Come to know. Come to know. Come to know. I came to know sin. And what come to know is, is a progression of awareness. The function of the law is to have you get growth in awareness of your sinfulness. So do you abandon the law? Do you abandon uh, willpower? You say, I'm not even going to try. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You should be trying very hard to be righteous, but not to climb the single line, not to get a righteousness of your own. You are climbing that single line to grow in your awareness of your sin. So here's how it works. Let me break it down and I'll refer to the illustration, okay? I'll give you an example. Let's say your problem is swearing. I use too many cuss words and I swear and I don't want to do that anymore. I want to stop doing that, okay? So you're going to try the direct application of the law to my heart. If that's all you do and you're thinking of this in terms of the single line, you, after some time you say, see, I swear a whole lot less. I'm way more righteous than those people who still use foul language. If you get the gospel in your heart, you say, yeah, I'm really going to do that. And maybe it does help you their dotted line. Maybe you say, I am going to, I'm going to swear less. That's great. My clean up my speech, probably a good idea. And you'll take your dotted line up an inch or two. That's great. Do that. You should. But the real function is going to be, it's going to take you down the lower line. You're going to say, wait a second. God doesn't care just that I stop swearing. God cares about all my speech. Bible says, let every word that flows from your mouth be edifying to the listener. So my sarcasm my little pet insults to people, little put-downs, quick comebacks. My ears, this is a sense of irritation. God cares about all that speech. It's not just the swearing. It's, it's not just this rule. It's way, it's way bigger than I thought it was. I'm way worse sinner than I thought. It's going to drive you down that lower line and make you more appreciative of grace. Now, I think you all probably thought I was going to say that because we talk about the line thing all the time. But you may not have thought about it. It drives you up the upper line as well. If you start really trying to keep the law, most of us don't. Most of us, if you are really resisting sin, Hebrews 12, 4 says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. Most of us resist for a little while and then you cave and you say, well, you know, nobody's perfect. You know, <laughs> I tried. Lord knows I tried, but nobody's perfect. And uh, I held out for a while, but um, most of us don't really, 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 really try to be holy or righteous. If you really try to be holy and righteous, and you start climbing that mountain, you're going to say, I, and if you think that you can do it, you're going to find out that what you thought was a little hill that you could climb is a mountain. It's a mountain of righteousness. And you'll find I, you've come to a holy mountain, a burning fire, and you're going to say, oh my God, your righteousness is way, way, way more than I thought it was. I want, to, I, want to, I want to dwell on this for a second because sometimes we talk, I'm talking to people about the gospel and how the gospel works in your heart. People stop me right here and they'll say, nope, nope, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. These are people who want to stay on the single line. They'll say, you know why I'm not buying it? Be holy as I am holy. Hmm? Be holy as I am holy. The Bible says, be holy as I am holy. That's the rule for Christian living. That's what we're talking about. How about that? Huh? How about that? When I hear that, what I say is, you should. You absolutely should. I encourage you. You should be holy as God is holy. You really ought to try that. Let me give you a really silly example. I hope you remember it. I wanted you all to know I've been working on my jumping skills. I used to be able to jump six inches off the ground. Now I can jump eight or nine inches off the ground. I've been working on my jumping skills. If I get a running start, I can jump even higher. I can jump pretty high. 
And you say, well, that's nice, Jim. They say, yeah, for a man my age, I can jump probably higher than you think I could jump. I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> Thanks for the jumping update. That's nice. And they say, yes, it's better than that. I've been working for a goal. I have a goal for my jumping exercises. I'm going to jump to the moon. <laughs> and then you would say, okay, Jim, exactly how high above the surface of the earth do you think the moon is? And if I said, oh, the moon, the moon is a good 15, 20 feet over the surface of the earth. I mean, it's high. That's a lot. I got a long way to go. But if I play my cards right, I make better choices, I really work at this jumping thing, I think I can do it. You would say, Jim, you have a massive problem of scale. Your sense of scale is way, way, way off. The moon is 240,000 miles from the Earth. You are never going to make it. So if you say, the way to live your Christian life is be holy as I am holy, you should really try that. Because as you try, it will drive you up the upper line. And you will say, his holiness is so much greater than I thought it was. His righteousness is so much greater than I thought it was. I am, and I, I'm such a failure, I can't even come close to that. But here's what will happen. As you realize how righteous his righteousness really is, then you'll be awestruck because you say, that is the righteousness he gave to me in the gospel. That's the righteousness he gives to me on the basis of faith. Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. So in my silly little example, God is looking at all of us saying, you guys are a crew that can jump to the moon. That's the way I see you. I see you as guys that can jump to the moon and beyond. And he said, there and say, I can jump eight inches off the ground. What kind of gospel is this? God is looking at you. you you've got an F. God is looking at you like you've got an A. And, 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 it's, try, and it's trying to, sit, to achieve righteousness. Be holy as I am holy. You try, you, you will realize what his righteousness really is. You realize that's the righteousness he gave to you, despite him knowing what a sinner you are. The cross will go larger. You'll be more filled with gratitude and you follow him. Now, question up here. Uh, before we get to the good news, yeah. this wait, isn't all wait, bad. Say your name for the... Oh, my name. Okay, Ray Tudelow. All right. Before we get to the good news, I camp in Romans 7 quite a bit. Why? Because I think the more we realize how holy the Lord is, the tougher it is for us to come to any realization we're ever going to make it. Okay. And there's past sins, past behaviors, past mistakes I've made that the devil loves to taunt me with. Mm -hmm. Now, I meet with my son who's got two kids in college and he's juggling four cars and he's, you know, active in church, taking missionaries and da, da, da. I said, it's going to get harder now. So I gave him a book, Mere Christianity. Ah, Great book. What it is. It kind of takes your breath away. It breaks all your presuppositions as to what religion and faith is. Right. Then once he breaks you down completely, then you can become teachable in the book. And at the end, you have to count the cost. And the deal is, I told my son, I, I want you to give me a report next time we get together because you haven't read it. Once you count the cost, it's going to get harder because he loves us too much to leave us where we're at when we first come to faith. Mm -hmm. He wants the best out of us. He wants a total commitment of us. Now, he's, we're never going to reach it, but you know what? He's going to push us to our max until he calls us home. That's right. I said, be encouraged. Get ready to roll up your sleeves, but it's worth it because life is not going to get any easier as you get older. You have physical limitations. You've got disappointments. You've got things you struggle with. So as we grow in our faith, we can mentor not only the people around us, but we can, you know, encourage the next generation. And it makes me want to stay in the word. It makes me want to feast on it. It makes me want to keep coming back to this beautiful setting we have here where we can be ourselves we can grow together. We can question. And I, before we get to the good news, I just want to tell you that get ready to roll up your sleeves, okay? And that's my comment. All right, thank that's you. That's right. All right, let's we'll roll up our sleeves, and we'll get right into Romans 8. But before we do, I'm going to summarize what we said so far in Romans 7. This is the idea. I want to try to write this down as best as I can articulate it, because I think this confusion of, well, Roll my sleeves, what do I do in the Christian life if it's all by grace, but I still have to do things? Like Greg said a couple of weeks ago, every other world religion is about what I do. Christianity is done. It's all done from the cross, but I still do stuff. How does it fit in? How do my, my, my works and my, my efforts to be right, how does it fit in the Christian life? And this is the way I put it together. It's not so much the direct application of willpower to the sinful nature of your heart to change your life. It is rather 
using willpower to direct your heart to the cross, which indirectly changes your life. And that is the role, if you remember in that little illustration of the little arrows before, if you, and if you live your life on a single line, you're saying it is the direct application of willpower to apply the moral law to my heart, to change my heart directly. That's what Alistair Begg is saying. People keep thinking that's the message and that's not the message. The gospel is all, but I, there is effort. There is willpower. There is application. That's why all the arrows in the other illustration are all pointing to the cross. You come to church, you come to Bible study, you read the word every day, all about Jesus, 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 and what he's done for you. And that melts your heart and you, are, and you respond by following him. This is the best way I think I can put it. Now, with that in mind, rolling up our sleeves at five to nine, we're going to go to Romans eight. How do we apply these principles to our heart? How do we apply these principles to your heart? In Romans 8, we're going to find three things in 20 minutes. In Jesus, we get three things. A new freedom to know ourselves, a method to change ourselves, and a power to be ourselves. First of all, a new freedom to know ourselves. Therefore, Romans 8, verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those words alone, on a standalone basis, would be just phenomenal, right? I mean, just if he just said that one verse to build your entire Christian life off will be enough. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it's the juxtaposition of Romans 8 with Romans 7 that is so incredibly beautiful, that is so glorious, that gives, has given Christians hope for 2,000 years. Because Romans 7 ends by saying, I'm a mess. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. There's evil dwelling inside me. And I didn't even print it, but you all know the verse. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, there is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is Paul saying, what we've been saying here a couple of times, I am simultaneously a zero and a ten. I am in Romans 7, I am a zero in my flesh, I'm a complete zero, I've got nothing, I've got an F, 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 bang! Romans 8, verse 1, there is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the juxtaposition of the two together that is so amazing in the Christian faith. I'm a zero and a ten at the same time. Simul justus et peccator, a justified sinner. That's what makes it so glorious. Now, no other system of thought gives you this. And there's something I just learned recently thinking about this. It's your conversations that I want to share with you. It may have been obvious to all of you all along, but it took me a while to get it. And I just, I, I, it's something I think I'm reflecting on and thinking about. I just want to share with all of you. That in Christianity, we are declared righteous. That part I knew. You probably have all heard that. That you are declared righteous. You're not earning your righteousness. God, through his act, through the blood of Jesus Christ, has declared you righteous. It doesn't come from you. It's from him. He's declaring you righteous. But what a point I realized, just reflecting on this, is this. In the gospel, we say we've been declared righteous. If you do anything else other than Jesus, anything else other than the gospel, you are declaring yourself righteous. You say, I'm tired of being told I'm a sinner. I'm not a sinner. I am not a sinner. I hereby declare myself righteous. It's as if that scale in the diagram with righteousness and time, we can't get away from it. We have to, there's this compulsion to justify ourselves. The other story, the person who said, I'm on the right side of every issue. And I want you to know there's this other issue that was in the news. And I'm on the right side. Why are you telling me that? Why do you want me to know that you're on the right side of that issue? this compulsion to justify ourselves because I declare myself righteous. I have to declare myself righteous. I can't just be indifferent. And, in, and then the odd thing to me, the quirky thing is that I say, they think, people think Christianity, you're so, you Christians are so self-righteous. You think you're so good. How you open down your nose at me and I'm saying, you're the ones declaring yourself righteous. We're, we're the ones saying, I'm a hopelessly lost sinner. In the gospel, I am so lost. I am so such an immoral failure. I'm such a moral failure. The Son of God had to die for me. I had to be declared righteous by some external power, external to myself, not declare myself righteous. But if you declare yourself righteous and you're your own savior, it is wearying. It is taxing. It is it's a heavy burden to bear to be your own savior. And it's fragile because there comes a time when if you say, I'm not a sinner, there comes a time you really blow it. I mean, you really blow it. And then who is there to forgive you then? And if you, if you say, I'm aligned with all the issues of the day, 100 years from now, the issues will all be different. And, this, and 100 years from now, they'll say, all your things you believe are backward and old-fashioned. And, uh, and you, you'll be the one that's out of step. 
if you if you step outside the faith, if you if you go to anything else other than Christianity, it becomes a self-salvation project. You're declaring yourself righteous, and it's fragile. And so the point in Romans 8 is that you get an incredible psychological freedom in Romans 8 once you accept the gospel message, because you say, you know what? I am a moral failure. I don't want to be a moral failure. I don't want to sin, but when I do, I'm not surprised. I want to confess it. I want to, it takes me further down my lower line. I'm more grateful for the gospel, but I'm not surprised. I am a moral failure. It's not, it's not a fragile faith. If you do the single line, you say, I'm a 9.9. Oh, if I really blow it, shoot, I've lost it. It's fragile. The gospel is not a fragile faith. You say, I'm not surprised. I'm a, I am a moral failure. And it gives you sociological freedom because you say, if you climb the single line, if you're self-righteous, you look at a group of sinners, you say, look at those, look at those prostitutes over there. I, I would never do, I can't believe those people, sinners. If you really get the gospel in your heart, you can hang out with anybody because you're not better than anybody. You can say, I'm no better. I'm no better. Maybe whatever path they're walking down, I have the evil in my heart. Listen to what Paul says. The seeds of evil in my heart to do the same thing just never got water. But see, there's incredible sociological freedom to relate to, to talk to, to hang out with anybody. You can say, I just know better than anybody. So that's a great message of the gospel in Romans 8. But it gives you a new method to change yourself. A new method to change yourself. That's not just this clamping down, a direct application of the moral law to your heart, hard work and effort. A new method to change yourself. Now, I'm going to read to you Romans 8, verse 13. This is the first sentence of a paragraph that's in the middle of the first section of Romans 8. And if you read just this one verse... It's what Jim Coward said the other day. If you read any one verse of Romans alone, you get error. Okay, but if you read just this verse, let me tell you how you can read it and get into error. He says, for, Romans 8.13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Aha, there it is. Climb the single line. Put forth the effort. Spirit's going to give you some help. God helps those who help themselves get a little grace. But you've got to put to death the deeds of the body. You've got to do a direct application of the moral law to your heart. And that's how you're going to really change. That's only if you read that one verse out of context. Now I'm going to read the rest of the paragraph to you and give you a new method to change. I'm going to start at the beginning again. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. If you read that verse by saying, I've got to really put to death the deeds of the body, apply my strength, you are falling back into a spirit of slavery and falling back into fear. You're going right back to the law. Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. And here, here's the point. Paul says, you are sons of God. Men or women, you are sons of God. You're all sons of God. Your position in him is absolutely secure. In fact, it's so secure. You can say, Abba, Father, a, a words of intimacy. You have this incredible relationship with the Father that cannot be broken. And because of that, in light of that, in the proper sequence, therefore, you can go and serve him. Right? Because you don't have to worry about it. You don't have a spirit of adoption of slavery. You can serve him. The whole key is sequence. The whole key is sequence. People say, but you still got to be good, right? In sequence. That's the key. I already know my position in him is secure. I already know that I'm a son of God. I can cry out, I'm a father. I'm not going to go back to a spirit of slavery to try to follow the law to justify myself. But therefore, I can live for him. Now, how does that work? It works by changing and recognizing what you mind. I'm going to read this to you, passage to you. Romans 8, 5, and 6. For those who live according to their flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind of the flesh is death. But to set the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. What is it that preoccupies you? This goes back to the epithemias. What is it that is really, really enthralls your heart? You can be a Christian, but you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but what really gets me going is this other thing. What really excites you, what is really at the center of your heart, that is what you set your mind on. Now, Paul is saying this whole process, in sequence, you are sons of God. Now, change what you mind. Take your mind off that, what, it, what you've wrapped your heart around, and wrap it around the cross, wrap it around Jesus. Now, I want to address this, because what people often say about the gospel, when you start saying it's all by grace, they'll say... Easy believism. 
Easy believe, that's easy believism, too easy. Generally, people that have climbed up the single line that feel like I, I, I've achieved a certain level of righteousness and I don't want to hear this easy believism stuff, it's too easy. It's all by grace, it's too easy. I want you to know, look, I'll give you, just give you a quick example and it'll just sound like I'm crazy. When I was a young Christian, I was in discipleship training, I had a checklist, quiet time, every day, daily devotions, get up early every day, check. Uh, be in a Bible study, check. Lead a Bible study, check. Friday night rally, check. Wednesday night worship service, check. Sunday morning church, check. Witnessing, door-to-door evangelism, check, check, check. I had a checklist. I was doing really well. You want to know it's easy believism? A checklist. I could give all of you a checklist and say, if you want spiritual maturity, just do this stuff. Check these boxes and you'll be a strong Christian. In my mind, that is easy believism. That is, you could do it because you could do it. You could check the boxes. You say, there, I've done it. I've got to achieve righteousness. This is way harder. It's, it's so much harder to say, okay, what is really enthralled your heart and your mind? Despite the fact that you've given your life to Christ, there's still some things in your life that you've given your heart to. Find those things, ferret those things out, change those so you say your whole heart and mind and you're enthralled with nothing more than the cross and the cross more than anything else in your life. That's, that's a change. That's a transformation of the heart. That's inside out change. It's way harder than check the box. So... This is kind of a summary. You have to take your mind off the things of the flesh by minding the things of the spirit. This is a spiritual endeavor. It's not pure technique. It's driven by the Holy Spirit. Who said that earlier? It's the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit helping you. The Holy Spirit's going to work with you to do, to do this. But how do you do it? Then we talked about last time, and I have a new phrase for you, and this will hopefully get you to remember this. And this is, gentlemen, start your engines. Start your engine. And I've already referred to this a little bit today, but the engine of the Christian life is gratitude. Gratitude. The engine of the Christian life is not hard work and effort. The engine of the Christian life is gratitude. You're filled with gratitude for what he's done for you. I'm going to read this to you. This is actually just a transcript from the Keller sermon when he was preaching in Romans 8. It is not enough to know that God loves you in general. You have to let the Holy Spirit show you how Jesus was condemned in your place. You learn that early as a Christian, and then you spend the rest of your life letting the Holy Spirit amass material that acts as a radioactive isotope that will shrink the sin tumors of your heart. Just like Tozer was saying, shrink the sin tumors of your heart. And the point here is that the Holy Spirit uses examples all around you to mortify, to mortify the things you've set your heart on, to mortify the tumors of your self-absorption. Now, last time I was here, we talked about the tale of two cities. Remember that story? But and the point that I was trying to make and that Keller makes here is that you see these examples all around you in art, literature, and film. And when you see these stories, it gives you time and a chance and opportunity to reflect on those stories and to say, wow, that's, that story is, the, way, the reason that story moves my heart is because it's really reminding me of Jesus. So we're almost out of time. I'll just give you one or, one or two stories like that, and then we'll take questions. One, uh, one other example in film, and I think we could all have examples, is Saving Private Ryan. Remember Saving Private Ryan? There's a platoon of soldiers that have to go save a private and bring him back home alive. And along the way, one of them gets killed and they all get together, the platoon. They haven't found Ryan yet, but they're saying, this Ryan better be a really good person because this mission is really expensive. We've already paid a heavy cost. And along the way, most of the platoon dies, but they're saying, this guy better earn it. <laughs> we are spending a huge cost to save this one individual. He better live the most incredible life. He better earn this. And then, and then they finally get him, and they're in the last battle scene. You remember the last guy's dying. He pulls Ryan by the chest. He grabs him close, and he says, earn this, as he dies. And then the final scene, uh, Ryan is an older man, and he's at the graveside of that person who died for him in the Normandy beaches. And by the way, I've actually been to that graveside. If you get a chance to go there, it's unbelievably moving. But, but he's standing right there over the grave, and he's, and he's looking at, Ryan, at the at captain's grave who died for him. And he said, I think I've lived a good life. I think I've earned this. I think I've done my best. When I see that story, I just weep because it's all about the God. It's all about sequence. Jesus paid the price first and then in loving response to it, in loving response to what we want to live for him. But the difference is we're not earning it. He's already earned it for us. We don't have to earn a thing. He's, it's completely, the price is completely paid. It is finished. All right, I'm going to give you one, one, one more story. It's not from film or art. It's just a story from my own life. I was in New York City, working in New York City in Midtown. That happened on 9-11. The first plane hit the towers. 
My wife tried to call me, the phone lines were all jammed, but I was in the tower, everyone was on the 33rd floor of our building on Times Square. And people said, oh, well, the towers have been hit by a plane. Uh, we all have memories of where we were that day. But the second tower was hit and they said, everyone out of the building. I started walking home through Manhattan on the Upper West Side to my uh, uh, apartment. And then the towers fell. And, uh, and I remember for days afterwards, the fighter jets circled the city and the smell of burning steel. On my block when I, where I worked, there was a fire station. And in that fire station, I passed by it every day and I didn't think anything about it. But afterwards, there were a whole bunch of guys in that fire station that died walking up the tower while other people were walking down. And then there were pictures up and there were mountains of flowers and people tributes for weeks afterwards. And I walked by that tribute. I'd see those guys' faces and their names. I would just weep. So thinking, if they could give their life for the city, they give their life for the people, our Savior gave his life for me. How much more... Can I be enthralled with Jesus and have him inflame my heart so I can follow him forever? Just by watching their example. That's what I think changes you and transforms you. Film, literature, art, that's great. In your own life, you see those kinds of images of self-sacrifice. You say, and that's what he did for me when I was a lost sinner? Fills your heart with gratitude. Your life starts to change. Your dotted line starts to come up. That's how sanctification works. Okay, that's Romans 6 through 8. I'll stop. It's 9... 13. Any more comments or questions? Yes. I'm Dave. Um, you know, people conjure up all kinds of images of what holy is, but holy just means set apart. And what sets it apart is the blood. So you think of the implements in the tabernacle, these, they all, all had to be cleansed with blood first. That made them holy, made them set apart, allowed to be served to serve God for his purpose. We don't set ourselves apart, make ourselves holy. He makes us holy. Amen. That's right. Uh, as you were talking, Jim, I was thinking of um, C.S. Lewis in an interview. He was asked about, um, so how do you know if somebody is a Christian? And they were especially talking about, let's say you have this lady who swears a lot. How do you know if she's a Christian? Uh, and is she a Christian? And C.S. Lewis answered him, he's saying, yes, she is a Christian because you don't know the raw material that the Holy Spirit is working with. And that's for each one of us. That's right. Praise the Lord, he can work with raw material like me. Bill. Yeah, I want to emphasize the fact that it's the Holy Spirit that's doing the work. It's the Holy Spirit works in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. It's the Holy Spirit that gave me the freedom to actually walk away from a lot of different kinds of alcohol without ever having even make a choice about it. It's just simply, I knew and he gave me the strength to do without. I had a friend that was a heroin addict and he got saved and got off of heroin just like that without even going through withdrawal. It's the Holy Spirit we need to recognize. Well, that's a great point. It is the Holy Spirit. That's why it's a spiritual endeavor. It's not pure technique. But in the Holy Spirit's really transforming your heart from the inside out. You lose your interest in those other things. You don't want to mess around with that stuff. We had another comment. But Lou. Uh, Lou. So, Jim, I think it's great that you talked about the love of God and the love of Christ and how much you realize what the price that was paid for us and how much he loves us still. Because in the two scriptures that stuck out to me this week were the intercession of the Holy Spirit. I think it's in 26. In the intercession of Jesus in 34. So they're interceding for us now. What, what great love that the sacrifice. And you have to think about what the great love the father gave to us by giving his only son. Well, a lot of times we don't. I saw God the father is more of a, a judge. I wasn't, he wasn't the gracious grandfather. A lot of people think he is now. I don't think he's that either. I think he's holy. He's very holy. But what helps me is when I go to Psalm 139 at the end, it says, search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And I think that's a great prayer we can all pray. And it's Psalm 139 starts off with God searching him first. And then David learns about what God is like. And that's what we're doing. We're in the process of learning how great God is, how holy he is. And then at the end, we want more. Because he changes our desires. When we say he changes our heart, he changes our desires. And our desires are, are becoming more and more like, like Jesus. That's right. To, to love Jesus more. And it's very simple when you think about it that way. 
That's we're great. all in that. We're all in that process. We all need to encourage and exhort each other to keep going on with God. As you're talking, it reminded me of another verse: <clears throat> "Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart." He's going to give you the desires of your heart by changing those desires. Thankfully, as you delight in Him, right? So, yeah, it's great, great comments. Thanks. Anyone else? No. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Uh, gosh, just thank you so much for the grateful, we're so grateful for the gift of your son, that in Christianity, it's not what we have to do, that it's all done, that you took F's like us and gave us A's through what he did for us, that we can be both zeros and tens at the same time. Your gospel is amazing, Lord God. Help us to change our hearts. Help us to take the things, the, our hearts off the things that we set our minds on and set our minds on you and the gospel. Help us to inflame our heart, to change us from the inside out. And be with us this week until we're together again. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.